Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free. Visit Pathwise and join today. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Michelle Frazier. Michelle is an oil and gas commercial and engineering expert with over 25 years of global experience in the UK and overseas locations. For the last 15 years, she has traveled the world managing large-scale projects globally for organizations like Novatech, Total, Yamal, PDNMS, CNR International, and ConocoPhillips. With hands-on experience across multinational onshore and offshore locations in the field of plant operations, troubleshooting, and optimization techniques. Michelle has bachelor's and master's degrees in engineering and an MBA from Scotland's Robert Gordon University, and she lives in the UK. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with the work you're doing today. I think it's kind of a mix of consulting projects. I gave a brief description in the intro, but fill us in on the kinds of projects that you take on. I take on a lot of different projects, uh, varying from... There are quite a lot big projects that I've been doing lately, several managing maybe five to 10 million pounds on projects that are worth a couple of billion pounds, quite a lot of big projects. I um, have worked in LNG, oil and gas, bit of renewables. I've worked in all areas of the oil and gas industry, the energy sector. You got your bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. How did you end up in the oil and gas industry? It was quite by accident. I wasn't going to even start being a technician. I started off as a technician about 30 odd years ago, but I wasn't going to be doing that. I was going to be doing something totally different because of how it was many years ago in women going into the men, male dominant right. industries. It wasn't really a thing that you could do back then. We were already steered towards being more typically feminine, female type of role. Then I got into engineering totally by accident because I decided after school that, that I didn't really want to follow the normal female type of roles and my mum saw an advert in the paper for junior technicians and I got an interview and I never really looked back from then. Being in Aberdeen, I worked in Aberdeen for quite a while, so being in Aberdeen, Aberdeen is a predominantly energy sector town. It was just natural to go in, into the oil and gas industry from then. Do you tend to focus more on upstream projects where the focus is on exploration and production or more on downstream projects where it's about refining? I have done both. I have worked in uh, one of the biggest uh, oil refineries that there was at the time over in Shetland. Um, I used to run their metering system for there, but it's mostly now it's uh, upstream. And I would imagine that you've been all over the place given that oil exploration tends to happen in the far corners of the world. Yeah, I've traveled quite a lot. 
I used to work in Aberdeen and then I've worked in Scandinavia. Um, I've worked in the Middle East. I've worked in Malaysia and all over Europe as well. I noticed that you speak Norwegian. Did you learn that on the job or did you speak Norwegian before you started working up there? Yeah, no, I learned it on the job because I was there for the longest. I think I was there for about five years. What's a typical project look like for you? You know, who's bringing you in if you're in a consulting capacity? How do you interact with your clients on a day-to-day basis? How long does a project go on? What does success look like? Usually agencies bring me in, but because I'm quite well known in the energy sector, well, I usually get headhunted normally by the same company for the last maybe eight years. Yeah. It's come eight years now. Uh, so I've worked with them on various different projects. So I normally sometimes get headhunted. Success for me, I think the last project that I had, because I didn't even get an interview. Normally you get a brief interview, but I didn't get an interview for that one. So it was quite surprising. It's the first time it's ever happened. Success is basically what I do is I sit in the client's office and manage the contractors. Um, I've managed various different contractors, all the big ones, uh, Technique, Saipem, Worley Parsons, which are Worley now, a couple other ones, Able. So I sit in the contractor's office and review. It can be anything. I've done everything from pre-feed all the way right through to commissioning and hookup to handover. I can be doing various different types of roles in uh, different projects I've done. A complete whole, I could run the project from start to finish. What is success to me? Being able to have fixed all the really difficult problems that a lot of people can't. So I think that's what I I look to have uh, completed what I've been taken on to do and the time scale that I've been taken on to do it, which could be quite a lot of different things. I This project that I was just finishing now, I was able to work on cybersecurity, which is the, mm. one of the first times I've done that as well, which is a major thing now in the whole of the oil industry. Normally, cybersecurity would be something that maybe the Middle East would do before, but now it's been called on even across Europe as well. Yeah, well, the threat's certainly there. It's there in any industry, right? And you've got systems that are managing something that's as potentially deadly Mm. as oil production, you certainly want to make sure that a bad actor can't get in and adjust things in a way that ends up harming safety or harming production in some other way. Yeah, that's true. That is exactly true, yeah. What's it like being on an oil platform day to day? I like being offshore. Offshore is good. Sometimes the flights are not that good. I like being offshore. Not all the time, but I only go off once in a while. But I like it. For me, it's the only way that you can really have appreciation about what you're working with is to see inspiration and to see what you're building, to see how it works. And you're not going to be able to do that. You can write about it and design it and read about it a lot in the office, but until you go offshore or on site, you're not really going to be able to have an appreciation about what you're doing. When you go out, how long are you typically out there at a stretch? One week. But I used to, I've been on site, I used to do, I think it was eight weeks away, 10 weeks away, and two weeks back. I was in China when I was on mm-hmm. site at the big LNG plant. I really liked that. Well, I would imagine when you're, whether you're at a plant that's far from home or in an offshore platform, 
there's just an intensity of the experience, right? And focus that you get to be working on your craft. That you go to an office every day and you drive in and you drive home and you let it go every day. You create distance between work and home. It's not quite the same as living, working on an oil platform or at a plant for a period of time. No, it's not. Being in an office is uh, quite all right. And it's quite all right if that's all you want to do. But I would advise any young person coming into the industry to try and go offshore or on site only for a couple of weeks and you only do it once because it's uh, exciting and then you actually get to see what you're working on yeah. what you're trying to all the problems that could that could arise because even your even what you're designing I've been on site when it was construction what you design even your initial concept during pre-feed and feed to going into installation. The design can, um, what you have down in paper right at the very beginning, even about maybe two, three years ago, might not even work when you're on site. So you have to yeah. do problem solving. And there is that stigma that maybe some site engineers are maybe not so good. I'm going to try and put my neck out and say that, but it's not even the case. I think the site engineers are extremely clever people because they have to troubleshoot because every yeah. time you stop production or construction to fix a problem it costs a lot of money yeah. so you have to keep things going so you have to really think in your feet and get the problems resolved before it goes offshore because it on site you can get a lot of people on the platform or the plant whereas when it goes to final destination or offshore you're limited to bed space and everything like that. It takes longer and it's much harder to fix a problem. You've mentioned pre-feed and feed a few times. So for me and anybody else who's listening who's not familiar with some of the industry jargon, what stage of the process are you referring to there? Pre-feed, you know, you've got initial concept, which normally runs about four, six months. And then you've got pre-feed, which will run about six months, seven months at the most, hmm. maybe a year. Depends how well it goes. Pre-feed is when you take the initial concept and you develop it further to a cost. I think it's, yeah. And then you've got feed, which is where you develop the design a, a lot more. And then you go into detailed design and then it's uh, construction. And then it's pre-commissioning, commissioning. And then it's, I think it's mechanical completion. And then you have to, there's but a lot of different stages and projects till you get to handover. Handover meaning when production starts? No, handing over the systems so to make sure that the systems actually work as they're supposed to. That's what I was doing in this last project. Yeah. And I was working on the ICSS system, which is the integrated control and safety system for the platform. But then we were, I was also handing over the RCCR, which is a, ro a remote control room. What are some of the ways that you specifically help to improve safety in operations? I mean, that's got to be paramount. It is. Well, you've obviously got your uh, ICSS system that, that controls a lot of the platform safety. It's quite a crucial system. Then you've got your, obviously, your fire and gas, your cybersecurity, your ESD, your emergency shutdown system, so a PSD. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of these systems going on in the background to keep everything safe. I mean, I would imagine there's parts of this that are well-developed and kind of industry standard and parts of this that are very specific to the site, what you're pulling out of the ground, other things as well. Is that the case or is it mostly pretty standard at this point? 
It's mostly pretty standard what you're pulling out of the ground, whether it's oil or whether it's gas. But the systems to keep everything safe, like your cybersecurity, your ICSS system, it's developing all the time. Technology is de- developing all the time. Because yeah. you're well, typically an ICSS system will only last you maybe about five to ten years before it becomes and, obsolete. And at that point, you would want to put in something new yeah. just to make sure you've got the latest and greatest available. Yeah, because even they'll start stop making parts after about maybe five years at the most. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of focus about environmental sustainability. How does that factor into the kinds of things that you do? It is a big issue, the sustainability. Although some people say that oil, they don't think the oil industry is going to be sustainable. But there is a clear focus all over the oil industry about sustainability and net zero and mm. to work on that. But it's not really going to happen overnight. And I don't think that there's going to be a magic switch that's going to turn it off in maybe about five to 10 years. I don't think it's going to, you're still going to need the oil industry going forward. I would think so. Well, I mean, you hear all these different viewpoints on that topic, right? Like people pushing that we should go all electric or all to renewables, the cost that that requires to make that switch over. It's, yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. I don't even know if you have the infrastructure and technology in place, but to have it happen overnight, take quite a long time for it to be all electric or all. And I don't even know if it would happen, actually. It will at some point, I imagine, but not probably for a really long time. And that's hence the challenge, I think, that a lot of people feel with respect to environmental impact. You mentioned at the outset, you know, just being hesitant to go into a male-dominated industry. How has it progressed in the time of your career? Do you still feel like you have to work extra hard to prove yourself because you're a woman or has it gotten more even footing over the years? I think it's worse than it's ever been, actually. Really? Yeah, I think, especially with the younger generation coming in, I would think that It'll get better slightly, but I don't think it'll ever change. I think it'll just be how it is. I think as a female engineer, I would always feel like I have to strive to prove myself all the time yeah. in the project that I go to. It's got to be a grind. It is. It's hard work. But you have to think about it. If you're a contractor, a consultant, and the client wants results quickly. Yeah, and I would imagine, I mean, there is a bit of, of arm's length in that relationship when you're a contractor or a consultant. It's not like you're an employee and when you're working in that capacity and there's always a little bit more of you come in, you have to prove yourself in general because yeah. you're, you know, you may be new to the organization, even if you've got a reputation as you mentioned that you do. Yeah. I always feel like I always have to try and prove myself the time. Try and keep up the hard work and stuff like that. You've worked your twenty ish years or whatever into your career at this point. How much of that have you spent working in a contractor consultant capacity and how much of it have you worked as an employee? I've not worked as an employee since I was 2006, maybe before. What is it about working as an independent consultant that appeals to you? I think it doesn't really matter now. I think it's okay as long as you can get the consistency of work all the time. Because you hear about some contractors are maybe sitting at home maybe for about six, six or so months. And that can be tough. But if you can get a consistency in work, which can be quite hard to do, then it's okay. But I like being a contractor. It's a lot more money. I think that's what a lot of the people find attractive about it. It can be quite a lot more money. It just gives you the freedom as well. You can do more traveling. You can go and work for different companies as well, even though I've worked for the same one pretty consistently for the last eight years. But you could go off. I think it does give you more freedom. I mean... You get to come in and do a specific piece of work 
I think if you were maybe staff, you would have your normal general role every single day. Whereas if you're a contractor, you get to do a lot of different types of work that maybe a staff person can't do or they maybe don't want to do. So you get more difficult problems to solve as well. And it sounds like you don't have to work overly hard at this point to generate work, that you've got enough of a reputation and enough of demand. I mean, you've been working for Total, right, for the last eight years. And yeah. so there's some steadiness in it, even if you're working in a contract capacity. It is. I've been quite lucky, actually. It's no, you have to take the downside with the upside, though. So it's not always been um, pretty consistent. Sometimes there's been some low points, and but you just have to, it is what it is when you're a contractor. Well, there's low points in when you're an employee too, right? Yeah, I would think so as well. I don't think anybody yeah. has it good, actually. What do you do during downtimes, if you've had downtimes? Well, I have my podcast now. So I started my podcast, my own podcast, Energy Sector Heroes. Uh, so I do that in my downtime and also my spare time as well. It's not too hard work to keep it going, but it's, uh, I enjoy doing it as well. You get to meet a lot of amazingly interesting people. How long have you been doing your podcast? Nearly a year, a year in January. How often do you do new episodes? I do every week, once a week, yeah. every week. Yeah, I really love doing it, actually. Yeah, I would imagine you learn a lot about other parts of the industry that maybe you haven't had as much exposure to by talking to people who are working in different areas of the industry. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear about diff people's different stories as well. Yeah. My podcast is not just about... It's about storytelling, about hearing about other people's careers, but it can also be going to technical discussion as well. So yeah, it can be quite exciting. We won't do a technical discussion here. It would last about a half second and you would run over me <laughs> based on my relatively limited knowledge of the oil industry. Talk a little bit about your day-to-day. -day. My day-to-day? -day, my day usually starts early. I have to be in the office maybe about 7.30 and then we have like a morning meeting with uh, offshore to make sure that everything's uh, okay if there's any problems overnight or from the previous day then we have to go and resolve them and then i would normally have a couple of meetings i would normally have to work on maybe work orders the last one last job that i had i was having to do some work orders from technical issues that made with the equipment that wasn't working. I would also have to get the maintenance routines prepared, but then you also get to do more interesting things as well. Like I had mm. to look after some of the cybersecurity systems as well, implement a strategy about how we we're going to upgrade it and maintain it. Do you have a time in the day that you feel like you're especially productive? Probably in the morning. But it sounds like you kind of get thrown right into those morning meetings. So you don't necessarily have that time for yourself. Uh, no, that's why I like to get in quite early. How do you like to start your day? What do you like to do to get yourself ready for the day? Um, I usually walk to work. So I live and try and get an apartment uh, quite close to work so I can just walk to work. This is a high stakes industry, right? High stakes environment. How do you deal with the pressures that come with the role? I like the pressure. I do like the pressure, quite thriving pressure, because it's quite a fast-paced industry, and the roles that I have is quite fast-paced. So obviously, your bosses want results quite quickly, so you are under pressure quite nearly all the time. Well, as you say, I mean, it, these are expensive projects to set up. They're expensive operations to run once they get yeah. running. Every minute counts, literally. It does. How do you balance the sort of pressure to keep things 
operating or to keep yourself on schedule in terms of getting production up and running versus the risk of safety issues? Safety always comes first because you have to realize that the men and females that are offshore have families to go home to. So safety is quite an important issue. You obviously have to work to the standards. We have like standards and procedures that you have to adhere to make sure that you're not compromising safety issues when you're doing your day-to-day work. Does the industry do a good job of encouraging people to speak up and voice concerns? Or do you still find that there are certain situations where people are afraid to raise those kind of safety concerns or whatever kind of concerns? No, no, it's not how it used to be many years before, maybe going back maybe about 20 years anyway. It was like that. People may not have might might have been frowned upon raising uh, safety issues, but it's not even like that now. It's more open. It's more welcomed if you're finding... Um, I mean, you're actually rewarded actually now if you find any major issues. So it's not like it was before. So it's moved a lot further ahead in that instance. Safety is always at the forefront. How do you keep boundaries set up between sort of work and personal life so that you have a good balance? It was quite hard before because if you're away, a lot of the people hang about together. And I do hang about with them. I do go out with them quite a lot. Since I started my podcast, I think it's um, I've had other things to concentrate on, which I, I find a lot beneficial to myself. You mean just in terms of doing your podcast or other things besides the podcast? Um, I do a lot of exercise as well. For me, you can't always be working together, out together. It is nice, but not all the time. Yeah. It's, you know, when you're off and you're working on those projects and you're someplace away from home and everybody's away from home, it is a fairly full-on experience, right? Those can go well or not well, depending on the dynamics of the team. And there's often pressure for everybody to be together. And so I would imagine that that's hard at times. Yeah, it is. But I'm quite lucky that I've got a lot of outside uh, activities that I do. Although I, we do go out together quite a lot as well. You spend a lot of time working in a setting that's very different from a traditional office. How's that shaped your view of, of what leadership is? A good leader should be approachable with effective communication and empathy. For me, I yeah. think so. being able to help the people offshore and on site if they need any help you would need to make yourself available to them. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about a a minute ago, just in terms of creating an environment where people can feel heard. As a leader, it's especially important in those kind of high-stakes situations that you have a sense of being even-keeled, not overreacting to a piece of news, all of those things that in an office setting where it really isn't a life-and-death situation, you could probably get away a little bit more with, I'll say, some bad behavior as a leader, but bad behavior in a leader in a high stakes situation where safety is paramount can get people killed or hurt if the leader's not really in the right mental space, right? I think as a leader, you would have to, I mean, you're, I mean everybody's got problems in the background, but I think you, you need to try and, and not bring that to work. I mean, it is easier said than done. I don't know. It depends how you define a bad leader. I mean, there's different styles of leadership. And maybe my style of management and leadership might be different to someone else's. But then yeah. I wouldn't say that would be I'm mine's is the right way and theirs is the wrong way. I think everybody has different ways of working. How would you describe your own leadership style? I would say hopefully I would have a lot of empathy and that I, would, I was approachable. We'd be able to listen and help people try and uh, resolve quick 
problems as quickly as they could. Is there anybody that you think of as a leader that you've, you've particularly admired, either somebody that you've worked with or somebody perhaps more from a distance? There's a couple of people. One would be one of my previous bosses, which was, who was Bruno Piquet. He was a good leader. I worked for him three times. I liked him as a leader. He was quite strict, but quite fair. But he was running a major project, running several billion pounds. So he was a good leader. I really liked him. And my other favorite leader was Ray Hillard. Mm. He taught me a lot and he gave me a lot of responsibility in the project that I had. He gave me a lot of confidence when maybe I didn't really have that much back then, which I will always be internally grateful, actually. He's a really good guy, a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. What did he do to help you build your confidence? He gave me a lot of responsibility. He was my engineering manager at the time, and he let me do a lot of his work. I did it quite confidently and quite competently. And he did say to me at the end of that contract, he says to me that you can do it and you would be, I would make a, an amazing leader. It's always really stuck with me as well. I, I think when you have a leader that pushes you a bit outside of your comfort zone, it may be a little bit intimidating at the time, but that's how you grow. Sounds like that's what he gave you was that yeah. opportunity. Yeah, he did. When you look back, I mean, you're midway into your career, we'll say, when you look back on the career decisions that you've made, how much of it would you say you've been really intentional about and how much would you say that you've been opportunistic about? I don't know. I've thought about this before. I don't, I've never had a five-year plan. I don't think it's, I've not intentionally chosen projects I wanted to do. I think I have chosen the ones I wanted to do and I've chosen, I don't know, because sometimes... When I get contacted, I don't even get a job description. They just tell me to come and then I just find out what I'm doing when I start. Challenging as well. Some Most of the time, I don't really know what I'll be doing until I get there. I've had that quite a lot of times. So I think it's mostly being opportunist, sometimes out of the blue. Sounds like it, but it also sounds like you go back to your point about confidence. I mean, to go into a situation where you're not even exactly sure what you're going to be doing, right? Or perhaps what success really means in that project, you've got to be confident in your ability to come in, figure it out, get the job done. It is. I always worry before I start something, a new contract, am I going to be able to do it? What am I going to be doing? Are they going to think I'm going to be doing a good job? Everybody thinks that, even 30 years on. I still get that. It's like a nervous energy because everything works out in the end and it's just, you're just worrying about nothing. There's that difference between excitement, which has more of a positive connotation and anxiety. It uh-huh. has more of a negative connotation, but they're both sort of nervous energy in one form or the other. I know. Sounds sounds like you've kind of figured out how to channel that into excitement rather than anxiety. Yeah, because I've been used to doing it because I've been doing that for quite a while now. Yeah. What are the strengths that you've drawn on over the years that have helped you to be successful? I think consistency and persistence, I think. Yeah. Because you have to be persistent. Sometimes the problems that I have to resolve, it's not really... You could be working on it for months because it could be one thing and then you go down one avenue and then it might not even be that and then, and then it might be something different. So you're always trying to figure out how to troubleshoot a problem that could be quite difficult. It might take quite a long time to resolve. You have to have the persistence to keep going when you meet a brick wall and maybe have to go and talk to someone else to try and get some more information about how how we're going to resolve this problem. Because it's just not going to go away. 
You may hope it might go away, but it's not going to go away. It's still going to be there and you're still going to have to fix it. When you're in the midst of doing an implementation project, right, of a new facility, a new offshore platform, if you don't solve the problem, then the work doesn't go ahead, right? It's a bunch of money wasted. So you, you have to solve them, right? It's not like it's just a game that you can walk away from, you know, or a puzzle that you can walk away from. And you have to enjoy that sort of give and take that happens in being a problem solver, right? Because sometimes the solutions don't reveal themselves as quickly or easily as you would like. No, that's right. And sometimes I've worked on a prob one problem that's maybe taken me quite a few months to resolve. And I could have inherited that problem from someone else who probably yeah. already started it, got kind of sidetracked, maybe couldn't maybe figure out how to go forward with it. So they've handed yeah. it over to me on, my, on me starting on the contract. So then, yeah, I've had a lot of that problems that I've inherited. Then I've had to try and troubleshoot that it's then taken me quite a few months after it's been somebody else has been working on it for quite a few months as well, which is just the way. But it's, you have to be pretty persistent to keep it going. So if persistency and consistency are strengths, what are some of the things that you've had to work on developing over the years? Effective communication. I was quite shy, actually. But since starting my podcast, I think that's uh, changed me quite a lot. I think probably the hardest thing that you have to really work on, and it's new, you're almost in a losing battle every day because every project that you work on, even though if it's with the same company, it's always different people. Yeah. You always have to find out everybody in the project who, who could be useful to you. You have to find out who they are, what their name is, how you contact them and stuff like that, because they could save you a lot of time. You would have to have quite good investigation skills and probably good communication skills to drive a problem forward. When you're constantly stepping into a new situation with new people and trying to figure out what's been done, what hasn't been done, what's been thought about, what hasn't been thought about, where do I pick this up and push forward? That's a skill in and of itself. Uh, yeah, you can almost say if you're a contractor, well, you're starting a new job in a new company every one or two years, which is stressful enough because some people don't change jobs maybe five, seven years. And you're yeah. doing it quite consistently. So it could be stressful enough doing that. And yeah. You're having to, to learn all these new people. and What's been a big challenge that you faced along the way and how did you work to overcome it? I think the biggest challenge I've had to face is being accepted males in the industry, I would yeah. say. But you have to work really hard to prove yourself. I think I've had to work really hard to prove yourself. Well, as I said earlier, that it's got to be frustrating, right? Yes. Wish it was an even playing field and you probably watch your male colleagues not having to work that hard to establish credibility and that can't feel fair but it is what it is you just have to accept it i don't think it's going to change anytime soon i hope yeah. it does but i don't think it will and realistically yeah. what do you wish somebody had told you at the beginning of your career that you know now yeah worry less i hear that a lot <laughs> worry less because it's never going to happen i only worry about it when it happens i wish yeah. I, if i could change anything i wish worry less any final advice you want to offer our audience listening today? Uh, I think come into the energy sector, even if it is an engineer or maybe not as an engineer. It's an exciting place to be, uh, full of challenges and opportunities. We need the industry. Yeah, we it's, do it's, need the industry. It's essential to our day-to-day -day functioning as a society. You know, yeah. we need people going to it. We need people bringing new ideas to it. That was part of my reason for wanting to interview you today was just 
to kind of bring it to the forefront because it's an important part of our economy. Yes, it is. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. I don't think it's going to be going away overnight. No, no definitely yeah. not. Well, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate your time. I know. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I have a lot of fun as well. Well, have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Michelle for joining me to cover her work as an oil and gas engineer and some of the lessons that she's learned thus far in her career. If you'd like to make the most of your career, visit pathwise.io and become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.